Take your seats, movie fans. The film's about to start. Welcome to Craft of Services, the show where we look at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. You can find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me on the show today is David R. George III. David is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of over two dozen novels, novellas, and short stories set in the Star Trek universe. He also co-authored with Eric Stilwell the story for the Star Trek Voyager episode Prime Factors. He's a former contributor to Star Trek magazine, and he's a film reviewer and blogger at his website, moviereviewsbygeorge.com. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I know from our previous conversations on Enterprising Individuals that you are a lifelong movie fan. Have you seen any good films lately? You know what? I just went to a screening of Crazy Rich Asians, which mm. uh, based on a Kevin Kwan novel that I did not read and I didn't really know anything about. Uh, but it's a film that features a, I was going to say a predominantly Asian cast, but I think perhaps an entirely Asian cast, now that I, I, I look back on it. Uh, and it's the first American film with, with an Asian cast in 25 years, I think since the Joy Luck Club. Um, and it's, a, it's essentially a romantic comedy, uh, and it's, it's good. It's, it's funny. Uh, it's charming. The acting is very good. Anything with Michelle Yeoh in it um, has got my vote to, to watch. So, um, but yeah, it was it, it was very good. I enjoyed that very much. Um, I'm trying to think what else we've seen lately. Um, we're, actually, I watched a film last night from 1949 called Champion with Kirk Douglas. Um, okay. I don't know if it was his first Academy Award nomination, but I think it was. He, he was nominated for Best Actor. He didn't win. Uh, brought a Crawford run for All the King's Men, which we won Best Picture that year. But right. um, I think it's the movie that, if, if it wasn't his first Academy Award nomination, it must have been. I think it's the movie that catapulted him to, to fame. Um, sure. And Arthur Kennedy also got a Best Supporting Actor nod, and uh, I think it was nominated for Black and White Cinematography and its script, its score, Dimitri Tompkins' score. And it won for best film editing. Uh, won an Academy Award for best film editing, and it was it, 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 it's a it's a, a boxing film, but it's a really okay. interesting movie because it's Kirk Douglas's character. You start out rooting for him, and he he just devolves into a, not a very nice person, which is kind of a surprise. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like uh, I love early. Um... Kirk Douglas movies. One of my favorites is uh, Paths of Glory, uh, oh, yeah. Kubrick film. Kubrick film, yeah. Terrific. Well, I know that you're a baseball fan as well, and baseball, of course, is a popular subject for films. Do you have a favorite baseball film? You know, it's really interesting because I'm such a baseball fan. I mean, I, I'm a lifelong Mets fan, which means I have a whole series of other problems. Um, <laughs> I also play baseball uh, in an amateur league, and I, and so, I mean, I, I really love baseball, which tends to make me dislike most baseball movies because I don't find them very convincing very often. Okay, um, sure. But you ask my favorites, and... A movie that I would say involves baseball and, and sort of gets, not just involves baseball, but gets to the heart of what baseball is, or at least what it means to me, is Field of Dreams. Yeah. Which uh, was based on a, a W.P. Kinsella novel called Shoeless Joe. And then I love W.P. Kinsella. He was a terrific writer, 
and and virtually all of the stuff is baseball oriented, short stories and novels. But the novel sure. Shoeless Joe, which was a, a good novel, was not anywhere near as good as the film. So they improved it in the adaptation. Yeah, yeah, which which is unusual. I mean, usually you always hear, oh, the book is so much better than the movie. Right. In this case, even though the book was good, the movie was much better. They they rearranged the writer. I think it was Phil Alden Robinson. I think he wrote and directed. Um, he he rearranged the story. the 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 crux of the story in the novel was getting Shoeless Joe Jackson to arrive at the 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 field at the baseball field amidst the corn in Iowa. Um, yeah. Early on, when when dead ball players start showing up, the, the the protagonist thinks, "Oh, I'm getting dead ball players to show up. I can get my dad to show up." That's at the beginning of the novel. They re huh. they rearranged the story for the the movie so that the the climax was that his father, with whom he did not have a good relationship, shows up at the end. Um, and it's just an unbelievably poignant and emotional moment in the film. Um, and just really, it, it, it's just an interesting exercise because, like I say, you so very rarely hear that films are better than the movies upon which they're based. And, and that's definitely the case with that one. Yeah, that's so fascinating that just as somebody who is well-versed in baseball and sort of an expert on it, uh, you get taken out of or, or don't appreciate baseball films. I I find that I love baseball as well, and I'm probably not as uh, knowledgeable as you, but I, I know a lot about it. What always takes me out of baseball films is that they almost always have one tone, which is that of like nostalgia or like this trioky appreciation for, for mm -hmm. the emotions of the game, you know, and they're mm -hmm. very rarely something that really has like high high stakes drama or something that's mm -hmm. compelling it's always about oh we love this game and it brings families together that is you know the purpose of field of dreams and i think it works really well in that film but every other film is this sort of schmaltzy kind of affair i mean i mean you could argue that even field of dreams is schmaltzy but it it, well, it, it yeah, works it but it is. works you know but i think the thing about baseball for me i think one of the things that i appreciate about the sport itself is that this may sound unusual, but I find the sport itself literary. Um, I mean, at the very basic level, the object of the game is to be safe at home. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to, you know, to go from there to, to just try and, and, and uh, you know, have some uh, analogies and, and similes and metaphors and all of this about baseball to, uh, you right. know, to life. Right. And um, <laughs> actually, I had a, had a, a very close friend um, who is about 10 years, 12 years ago now, who actually had an accident, was, was clearing the gutters on his roof and fell off the ladder and hit his head and was in a coma for a while. And he, he recovered. And so that's the good news. Um, while I was, while he was in the hospital and we were not sure what was happening to him, I wrote to him. I, I, I sent him some emails um, just to deal with my emotional turmoil and, 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 and my hopes that he would be okay. I played baseball with this guy. Um, we were in the same league together and, and played in tournaments. Uh, and so one of the things I said to him uh, in, in one of the emails was, uh, you know, I can't wait until you're safe at home. I mean, I mean, I, I used it right there. So, um, and, and baseball lends itself to that. And I've read plenty of good baseball short stories and novels, 
but haven't seen as many good movies. I mean, I wanted, I mean, The Natural was a terrific novel, not such a, for me, not such a great movie. I mean, it's very, there are things about The Natural that I really enjoy. It's, um, it's very cinematic, um, very sort of theatrical, actually, almost. And, you know, love Robert Redford and all, but I don't know, the movie just doesn't, doesn't quite work for me. It doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense, actually, the story. Um, yeah, I'd be right there with you. If I had a podcast about overrated movies, I think The Natural would be one of the first ones that we covered. I liked uh, I liked League of Their Own as well, um, although I didn't I didn't love it for one thing because Gina Davis couldn't play baseball, and that, that was clear. <laughs> so it just takes me right out of the movie. Lori Petty could play, not so much Gina Davis, um, so, and it was funny, and you know, and I, I liked it. But it's not I, for me. Field of Dreams is is the pinnacle. I did watch um, recently. Fear Strikes Out with Anthony Perkins oh, okay, sure. um, as Jimmy Pearsall, who uh, suffered from mental illness. This is a true story. And, and um, the movie, which is interesting, the movie was based on a book that Pearsall himself wrote, and it took his father to task, really, for his upbringing and for just relentlessly trying to get his son to to play baseball. He couldn't make it as a big leaguer himself. And so he wanted his son to make it. Um, and it just had, it was just this crushing pressure on Jimmy Pearsall. And then the movie really, I mean, it, it, it just showed this. Uh, it, it didn't tell you, it just showed you what a domineering father <clears throat> played by Carl Malden, Jimmy Pearsall had. And, um, and it, it was it was really interesting, but it, it was a pretty good film, especially for its time. But what was peculiar about it, and unfortunately, Anthony Perkins clearly couldn't play baseball either. But I got past that because it was a really good story. <laughs> but I, 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 reading about it later, I discovered that Jimmy Pearsall disowned the movie because it blamed his father too much. But it was based on a book he wrote. <laughs> so, okay, all right. <laughs> I'm not sure where that disconnect came in. It's kind of peculiar. Yeah. Did you ever see the Michael Keaton movie Game Six? Yes. As a matter of fact, how could I, a New York Mets well, fan? I, I, I was just asking. <laughs> yeah, I, um, you know what? I don't even I don't remember much about it. Um, I did see it though a few years ago. It, it, it's there's not it's not there's not really much to the movie. Um, I think there's no. more for somebody who is a Mets fan and not just a casual Mets fan, but a uh, you know a long time. Uh, and deeply involved Mets fan will get more out of the film because of the backdrop of Game Six, Game Six of the 1986 World Series, one of the the classic come from behind impossible uh, games uh, that the Mets ended up winning, and then that catapulted them to the World Series victory. So I will, I right. liked it for that, but as a film itself, it just I mean I like Michael Keaton a lot, and I think he I think he did good, but I, a good job in that film. But I don't know that it was a great film. I don't even know where you are. I don't know if you're in New York, if you're a Mets fan. <laughs> I would assume you're not well, a Mets fan because you sound uh, emotionally stable. <laughs> uh, I'm hiding it well because uh, with your uh, your beloved Mets' 1986 uh, World Series victory, I have to deal with the uh, Minnesota Twins winning the uh, World Series in 1987. And then, of course, in 91, just as I was you know, becoming a teenager and uh, having my the things that I would love and care about for the rest of my life being set in stone. And then, of course, they uh, go completely dry. <laughs> just a winless streak up until this point. So I have a sort of the, it's like the Midwest version of uh, loving uh, the, the Mets or the Red Sox or something like that. Well, I've gone longer, you know, it's 
been 86 is longer than 87. <laughs> that's true. You've got me on that one. That's, yeah. that's absolutely true. Uh, you have your master's degree in mathematical sciences. Uh, and I do. I've read that you constructed uh, or you con- conducted research on artificial intelligence in completing your thesis. I did. I my I wrote uh, an original thesis. Um, my um, my research was on automatic theorem proving, which I think, although I haven't kept up with AI, um, other than sort of a casual reading every now and then of articles and such, uh, I think AI has come a long way. I mean, it's not real science fiction or artificial intelligence at this point, but machine learning was when I wrote my thesis was not a thing. And now mm. machine learning is a, is a big deal. And they're, they're really putting a lot of time and effort uh, into uh, finding out how to, to make machines learn. Um, but I, I based my research, uh, did I say this on automatic? It was, a, I not only researched, but coded the preliminary stages because I couldn't do the entire thing because it would have taken me years or decades. Um, <laughs> right. But I, but I, at the, certainly at the time too, uh, because we were dealing with a, a, a time where there was a lot less memory available uh, for computers and things like that. Um, but my, my thesis was on, uh, my research was into, uh, I did an automatic theorem prover for Euclidean plane geometry. So basically I wanted to be able to take, um, take a, 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 a hypothesis and be able to mathematically prove it. So what, build a, a mathematical proof, a rigorous mathematical proof with the required constructions uh, and uh, each step and each, each reason that brought you to the next step. Um, and as, again, I, I went through the preliminary stages of that, uh, did the coding on that and, and wrote a thesis that was I haven't seen in a long time, but it's uh, it's over a hundred pages. So and it got wow. <laughs> so yeah. You've already talked about how your experience with baseball colors your view of baseball films. Uh, are there any um, films about robots or artificial intelligence that you think really get it right, or even really get it wrong? Hmm. You know, I enjoyed um, what was the film with. Um, Oh, I can't even think of the actors' names. Um, a couple of years ago, the guy who did... Uh, oh, no, I can't even think of that film's name. <laughs> uh, well, that's great. Um, yeah, you've got a memory problem. <laughs> uh, yes, Oscar Isaac and... Um, oh, uh, Ex Machina. Ex Machina, yeah, terrific. I'm trying to think of it. What was the guy's follow-up film to that with uh, Natalie Portman and Oscar uh, Isaac? Annihilation. Annihilation, Yeah. Right. Those are yeah, the two films I was trying, trying to think of. Um, sure. I liked Ex Machina very much. Um, I thought that was a, a pretty good film. Um, you know, artificial intelligence is an interesting thing because I, I don't know that science fiction has quite got it right yet uh, at all, even in print, where we're going with uh, what, what it's going to mean to have artificial intelligence. It's got all, all sorts of people like Stephen Hawking, um, uh, and um, and others saying that once we get to the moment of the singularity where we have genuine artificial intelligence, that's that's R.I.P. for mankind. 
they're, will, they're just going to wipe us out after that. There are a number of people who believe, believe that. Um, and, you know, Stephen Hawking was a smart guy. So um, <laughs> right. I think that's an interesting. There was another film with Michael, was it, no, with um, Johnny Depp. Um, Transcendence. Where, Transcendence. That was just awful. <laughs> That's what I, I mean. Heard. That, I haven't seen it. Oh man, it was really, really tough. Uh, it, it was a difficult film to watch. It just it, it it sort of started out, as I recall. I mean, not a lot of it even stays with me. It's it's, but I think it started out all right. But it just devolved into something where you it, it just what was happening wasn't making any sense. Okay. Um, but there was another film, a recent film that I enjoyed with. Um, it was Scarlett Johansson. Um, oh, is are you talking about Lucy? Yes, Lucy. Did you see Lucy? I did see Lucy. I also saw uh, her. That Scarlett Johansson, oh, um, right, the voice right. of the AI in that one. Right, right, right. I, you know, I liked her as well. Her, I thought her was really interesting. And actually, I think her was a very good film because it was, uh, I think, much subtler um, yeah. than anything else we've seen with respect to artificial intelligence. It pointed out something that. Um, I think really is prevalent, um, certainly was and probably is still prevalent in modern day AI, which is that it's not really artificial intelligence. It's the illusion of artificial intelligence, mm. right? It's just when you've programmed something to emulate, that, that's different than programming something to think. Um, but it also, you know, it, it starts bringing up deeper questions about, okay, well, what about mankind? Are we just, it, it, are all our thoughts and actions deterministic because we essentially have this complex machine in our head, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. if a brain, if your thoughts are just the result of a physical state of your brain, does that, yeah, does that mean that everything's deterministic, that, 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 that we genuinely don't have free will that there were, were just the result of the physical physical brain i i don't know i but yeah. uh, her her sort of touches on those uh, ideas because here um we have is it was it joaquin phoenix who, who was the yes joaquin phoenix yeah. yeah joaquin phoenix was uh is thinking that he's having this unique experience with this operating system but it turns out not so much. I mean, she's having this unique experience with everybody. Right, right. So yeah. the only thing that's unique about it really is him. So, yeah, yeah that was a really interesting film. I also really liked that uh, it, once the, uh, the AI or the AIs become sort of self-aware um, in the story, like they don't go Terminator and try to kill everybody. They just don't really care about humans anymore they're kind of moving on and doing their own thing and right. we've been making monsters i mean we're going to talk about a monster movie today we're, we've been making monsters out of robots and artificial intelligence since metropolis or maybe before but right. it seems like it's only in the last few decades that we've really seen films that explore or, or at least are trying to explore taking the first steps you know the nature of an artificial mind i have to be careful to stay on the right show here but i think probably like data from star trek has really helped shape the idea i think in fiction of a benevolent artificial intelligence that it, he just wants to learn and, and become human ultimately. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, I think you can probably go back a little farther than that to, you know, Robbie the robot and forbidden planet, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think data really stepped that up considerably. Uh, and also, I mean, you know, all of Star Trek, you know, all of Star Trek's 
quote-unquote artificial characters like the Doctor and Voyager. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, because the Doctor really, in some ways, is even more interesting than Data and sort of more definitely an artificial intelligence because he's not a physical, I mean, <laughs> I mean, sometimes there's the gray area in Voyager, but, you know, he's not a physical being, really. Right, right. Right, in, in that sense. I mean, he's just, I mean, he just started out as a, as a software collection. So, um, yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Well, Data's always talking about his ethical subroutines, um, which right. I, I hope right. are, are well protected. Uh, you wouldn't want them to be hacked or, or glitch out just as he's uh, going to give you a back rub or if he's... <laughs> piloting the ship and he augers it into an asteroid or something like that but hopefully um we'll alleviate stephen hawking's fears by having some sort of uh, ethical program uh, or standard in our uh, artificial intelligence well that's the thing who's writing the ethical subroutines exactly exactly right? you know, hopefully it's not martin shkreli or you know <laughs> oh boy <laughs> just to uh, pick a name out of the news Oh, no, that's a, that's a good name to pick out of the news. Uh, well, I'd love to keep talking about that, but we should probably get to uh, our film of the day. I have to remind our audience that the name of the show is Crafted Services. On every episode of this podcast, we look at a film that is poorly rated, generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, but one that was well-remembered by audiences at large. In the case of today's film, all that shit gets thrown right out of the airlock because we'll be talking about a film that is universally beloved now, but it was certainly a groundbreaking, misunderstood classic when it debuted in 1979. I'm talking, of course, about Ridley Scott's second feature film, Alien. In 2018, Alien is unquestionably a classic film of the American New Wave, launching the careers of its director and star, popularizing the work of artist H.R. Giger, and revolutionizing the monster-in-space genre, spawning, pun intended, its own film franchise of eight films with undoubtedly more to come, as well as endless tie-in fiction, comic stories, and video game properties. And Aliens had many imitators over the years who failed to capture the film's delicate balance, its haunting tone, its sci-fi horror thrill, Uh, Not the least of which Ridley Scott himself, who's recently returned to the franchise with two inferior prequels. But whatever strange alchemy was involved in its making, Alien remains an early high-water mark for science fiction and horror filmmaking. Uh, Before we get to the main course, if you will, of what we're talking about today, I'd be interested to find out, are you a fan of the sequels and uh, prequels and spinoffs in the Alien franchise? Well, I would say no. (laughs) Um, I I would just sort of... I was astonished when you said that there were eight sequels. Yeah. I'm like, eight? Are we up to eight? But I think, okay, yeah. wait, there's Alien versus Predator, that right? Nice. You have to yeah, those. Yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, okay. You know, I just recently watched um, the latest. Um, the the one with uh, the the two uh, Michael Fassbenders. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was really, really disappointed uh, in it. Um, uh, I wanted to like it. And, of course, all of these films, for the most part, look beautiful because they do deal with, you know, they have H.R. Giger's spectacular um, covenant, Alien Covenant. Okay. Uh, you know, the spectacular uh, artwork that is, is, is haunting and original. Um, I mean, you talked about not being able to find the balance of the sequels, being able to find the balance that the original film had. But also, um, it's while the artwork is beautiful, uh, the, the set design is always great, it's also, at this point, derivative. Yeah. I mean, H.R. Giger's work in Alien 
1979 was spectacular, but that's nearly 40 years ago. Right, so yeah. time to move on, right? Show me something different. Show me something new. It's it's right. still great, but I've seen it before. But that that actually was the least of it. It it just it seems to me as though the features are just a way of getting the alien or aliens on screen in order to commit gruesome acts. Um, I, I guess, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's tiresome to me. Um, I, I, yeah, it, it, it becomes like, how does uh, Jason come back to life this time? Or how is Freddie going to get them this time? I absolutely agree. And I also think it misses the point of the, of the first film. I think they've, they've gone very far afield. I actually have said for a long time, and I have plenty of people have disagreed with me, that, that uh, Alien is not a science fiction film. Now, it has science fiction trappings. It's certainly in a science fiction setting. But for me, it's a horror film. And in many ways, it's the quintessential horror film. Because, for one thing, it, it doesn't, while it does have a couple of gruesome moments in the film, uh, it, and really one in particular, of course, uh, it, it's not about the gore. It's not the shock value from seeing somebody's head lopped off or they, you know, they're being dismembered or whatever, how many horrific ways somebody can die. Because mostly you don't see the alien. It, it's yeah. not on screen for very much. It's a film that really ratchets up the tension by making you anticipate what's going to happen rather than showing you something happening, which is what a, a, a really, uh, for me, what a really good horror film does. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, before we get started, I want to reiterate, I always say on this show that we talk a lot about Rotten Tomatoes, but this podcast is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. Uh, we don't endorse <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. We just use it as a metric in this case. As a critic, what do you think of the popularity and the rise of aggregate review sites? You know, I actually don't use Rotten Tomatoes myself. I'll occasionally find myself glancing on there for something specific, usually. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I look at anything, I typically look at a site called Metacritic, but I don't even go on yeah. there very much. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like, I like, actually, I like writing reviews. I was going to say I like reading them. I like reading reviews. I like writing reviews. Um, the aggregators, I mean, generally they aggregate professional reviews, and then they'll also aggregate user responses, um, yeah. people who've gone on the site. And those I completely ignore because there's nothing really scientific about that, right? You could have, you know, just 100 people who felt the need to reply on something because they really hated something, and that doesn't really tell <laughs> yeah. me anything because yeah. there could have been many, many more people who loved, loved a film and didn't go on the site or vice versa. Um, right, yeah, yeah. The professional aggregators, you know, it depends. There are reviewers out there that I don't agree with consistently. Uh, in fact, yeah. there are very few movie reviewers that I really, really like. Um, there, there, there are enough, but um, you know, I, I find sometimes that there are outlets that, uh, if there's a review in there and they hate something, that that's a really good indication that I'm going to like it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and and vice versa. You know, I do like and historically have liked the reviewers at the New York Times the, back in the day, Vincent Canby, Pauline Kael, A.O. Scott, um, sure. more sort of cerebral uh, in their approach and with a deep 
understanding of the history of film. So you get not just a review of a film um, on its own, but in in the context of the of what it, whichever film they're reviewing. If it's a current film of the current movie making of the day, but also yeah. if you can, they'll put it in a historical context and and bring up other films that you know maybe anticipated uh, a current film or whatever. But uh, yeah, but you know, generally I don't go on the the, the aggregate review sites. Um, yeah, there are so many movies in so little time. I, I'm, I'm going to make up my own decisions yeah, <laughs> on sure, what I'm going to yeah. say. My big issue uh, with them, or at least one of them, is that I you say that they have professional reviewers, and I guess I should be kind of careful not to relieve myself uh, where I eat. Uh, as a sort of semi-professional reviewer myself, but what I don't know who determines what's professional. You know, in on one line you can have something by you know David Denby, and the next one it's like themovievault.com, and you don't know who this guy oh. is, and if he's just you know what what gives him authority in his opinions, right. and and then it just lumps them all together. You know what I I, I think because I spent so, have spent so little time on Rotten Tomatoes, I'm really thinking more of Metacritic where. Um, you can see that they'll have four or five, the beginnings of four or five reviews posted for a film, and below it'll say, see all 23 reviews. And when you bring yeah, up all 23 yeah. reviews, it's not the movie Vault. It's the New York Times. It's sure. Time. It's the Village Voice, Variety. I mean, it's it's what I would consider, uh, I don't know, reputable is the, the, the right word, but people that I have historically understood to be reviewing in a professional way to, to, to be reviewing with a certain amount of expertise and expertise in being able to actually write and expertise in understanding film. It doesn't mean yeah. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm a writer and I, you know, I've written 18 novels and the best review I've ever read of one of my works was a negative review. I didn't okay. agree with it, <laughs> but it was really well written. And argued its points. So you know, you take from you take from a review what you need to take from a review. Uh, my apologies if there is a movie vault out there. This is not directed <laughs> specifically at you. <laughs> I think what you're saying is those people, in a sense, have not been vetted, right? Sure. Everybody, everybody, and their mother has a blog, um, and everybody can put their opinion out there. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great democratization of opinions. And but the the problem is somebody can write something about a film. And I have no idea uh, if what they're, you know, they could be 13 years old and have and have only seen seven movies in their life, right? So that that, you know, that 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 is not an informed review, you know. Not that I would dissuade 13 year olds who've only seen seven movies from no, writing no, reviews. Please. Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to discourage that. Well, the movie that we're going to talk about today uh, got varied reviews, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, it is, of course, Alien. It was released on May 25th of 1979. Uh, it clocks in at a, by today's standards, economical 117 minutes. Uh, it was a financial success at the box office. It made around $80 million on an approximate $8 million budget. Um, and $80 million in 1979 money would be about $280 million in 2018 dollars. Although Fox initially claimed that with the cost of distribution and promotion, the film did not make a profit, which many people point to as an early example of Hollywood accounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ratings for the film currently sit at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, 83% on Metacritic, 
8.5 out of 10 on IMDb, and it's number 52 on IMDb's list of top-rated films. It's easy, easily the highest-scoring film that we've ever covered on the show, and I do feel like I am getting away with something here, <laughs> getting to talk about Alien on the show. But I will prove, it will be proven, that critics were, uh, in some parts, uh, or in some ways, uh, negative to lukewarm on the movie, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, it was directed, of course, by Ridley Scott. It's his second feature film after The Duelists in 1977. And prior to that, Scott had worked as a set designer for BBC Television, and he was a successful television and TV commercial director himself. The tagline of the film became one of the most recognized taglines of all time. It is, of course, In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream, which was written by Barbara Gipps, who is a copywriter for Fox, and a wife of Philip Gipps, who designed the poster for the film. And one quick note, in many foreign markets, the film was retitled The Eighth Passenger, or specifically in Hungary, it was titled The Eighth Passenger is Death, which I think is uh, it doubles as a great tagline for the film. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, that uh, In Space No One Can Use Scream uh, tagline, when I I recently wrote, when I, I told you I wrote, read, I watched Alien Covenant, and I re- actually mm. wrote a review of it. I've got it on my website. And uh, my title for the review was, In Space, No One Can Hear the Bad Reviews. <laughs> yes. In Space, No One Can Hear You Yawn. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, can you summarize the story briefly? Uh, the Eighth Passenger is Death, I think, pretty much sums yeah, it up. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's actually one of the things about the film that I think is very compelling is you've got this ship, the Nostromo, that's returning to Earth. It, it looks like an oil refinery in space. And that's essentially what it is, some sort of processing facility. And this, this seven-passenger crew have gone out to, to work, and now they're coming home. They're in suspended animation for the trip home, um, uh, but then they're a- awakened because there is um, a distress signal is, in, uh, is detected. Actually, I don't even know if right. they think it, they know it's a distress signal initially, but uh, mm-hmm. what seems to be an alien signal is detected. The crew's woken up from suspended animation. They investigate. Uh, and they find more than they bargain for. Right. Yeah. It's such it's such a simple plot. I mean, it's so light on plot, really. And there are suggestions and hooks, you know, if you will, that definitely the franchise has um, used to extrapolate into more storytelling. But it's so finely insecu- uh, executed. And it could have gone, as we've seen in later films, it could so easily go wrong or be trite or hackneyed. I like to compare it to scrambled eggs. Like it's simple ingredients. It's butter, it's eggs, salt, maybe a little water or cream. But it can be so difficult to get the combination exactly right when you're cooking it. And we all know the difference. We've all tasted the difference between good good and bad scrambled eggs. Well, and the truth of the matter is that it's unbelievably difficult to make a bad film. It's impossible to make a good film. Uh, I mean, <laughs> just the amount of coordination between human beings it takes to, to get any film yeah. completed and on the screen is astonishing. And, and yeah. if it ends up being good, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, it's, yeah. it's really interesting because I think you're right. The ingredients are very simple. Um, but there are, there are ingredients, and they do hook into these in later films, there are some ingredients that I think sometimes people don't remember um, that, that sort of add to the malevolence of the atmosphere of the film. The fact that you've got a seven-person crew, and it turns out 
that one of the crew is working against the rest of the crew. Um, right. Turns out to be an artificial life form, an android, who's actually doing the bidding of the company for which this crew is working. Um, and they have now this. Some of this may have changed as they retrofitted um, the chronology in future films. But basically, you get the sense in, in Alien that this crew uh, knows about this alien race somehow, and they see something. They see dollar signs because they think right, this, right. Is, this is either they can weaponize it. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's it. Basically, they feel that they can weaponize it, that they can learn, um, they can take how uh, the, the nature of this, this creature, the, this alien race, turns out to be just one on this planet that, that comes back with the crew, but um, there, there could, have, could have been others. Um, they want to take it and, and make money out of it because it's, it's, it's powerful, it's... You know, one of one of my favorite lines in the movie after the the, the face hugging alien has 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 died, like be careful, be careful, you know what's going to do. And and I think it's Yafit Koto who says that thing was it bled acid when it was alive. You don't know what it's going to do when you, it's dead. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Which and then the the corporate man Ash's response to that is like, well, I don't think it's going to be a zombie. Like he's yeah, just. Right. Uh, completely ignoring those fears. Uh, also, having that character who's among the characters that are threatened, um, which is who is actually you know a threat himself, is it's very reminiscent of uh, something that I think probably helped inspire this. Um, Ten Little Indians, you know, it's sort of a, mm -hmm. a there were none situation. Right. I think this is my favorite type of movie the the haunted house and the haunted house in space. Um, the, the, like the movie where you've got people in a ship or a base and they can't get out, they're trapped with something. Right, it's the thing. I really enjoy those. Yeah, it's um, and and I think Roger Ebert in his original Roger Ebert hated the film when it came out. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert both both didn't like it, and I think Roger Ebert said it's just a haunted house in space. Um, yeah. And the problem there is the word "just." I, I, you might not have said exactly that, but that was his intent. And the the the, the word "just" or the the idea "just" is wrong because it's not just a haunted house in space. It is the quintessential, exceedingly well executed haunted house in space. Right. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of. Um, I was thinking about it, and it put me in mind of Psycho. You know, Psycho is a movie that's, I think, at this point, generally considered a masterpiece. But when it yeah. came out, it was also reviled. That's that's our next episode, Psycho. Okay, um, all right, I got that down. <laughs> but but, but it's, a, it's the kind of thing where it, it, it really broke new ground. I mean, the, have we seen haunted haunted house movies before Alien? Yeah, but, the, but it was different. It was high tech. It was... Um, but it, it had the... the they hit the tropes, right? I mean, it was claustrophobic because these yeah. people were trapped on this ship. They're trying to get out. And, you know, the 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 first person to die is John Hurt, um, who's an engineer, I guess. Uh, but the second person, I think, to die was Tom Skerritt, who was the captain. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, spoiler alert. Um, um, I think technically the second person to die was, yeah, well, there's going to be spoilers all throughout this, yeah. uh, was uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character gets grabbed by the alien. Oh, okay. All right. But, but Tom Skerritt, was he the third person? Hey, he, yeah. you, you don't, in a movie like this, you don't expect not only the captain of the ship, but the first actor in the credits yeah, to right, die right. halfway through the film. Yeah. 
So pretty much yeah, all bets yeah. are off. Right. Can you remember the first time that you saw the film and your reaction to it? Yeah. I mean, I actually, I remember seeing it, um, I remember seeing it on the big screen. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and it was, uh, the audience jumped multiple times, <laughs> which I thought was, I, I, it, I don't know why I was sort of paying attention to that, but it, it was, it was also very quiet. Um, uh, people were really, uh, wrapped. They were really focused on what was going on. And I think that was because of the tremendous tension that really Scott developed. I mean, the, the film is, I, I would say, haunting in many ways. The atmosphere is haunting, not just because these people are being hunted, um, you know, at least, uh, you know, partway through the film, they start being hunted by something that seems just impossible to kill. Uh, they're also, the, the, the atmosphere of the ship is haunting, right? The, the ship is old. I mean, it looks old. It looks uh, like it's had a long functional life, and it's dark and dreary. Uh, and I think that contributes to it. I mean, there are there are there are bright, shiny areas like the sick bay and things like that. But the ship, by and large, is just uh, it's technological, but it's technologically sort of secondhand. And actually, yeah. that's sort of interesting to watch now because. I have no doubt that that the technology was state of the art um, and sort of from the outside before anybody starts interacting with the computer, it, it kind of looks cool and like it will be functional and modern. But then when you start seeing the, you know, the, the non-proportional fonts, the, the, the white letters on the blue screens or whatever it was, <laughs> yeah, it, right. it, it's just it's very rudimentary for today's technology. Obviously, yeah. I mean the movie. The movie's almost forty years old, so you expect yeah. that. But it's still, for me, it still sort of works. Yeah, there's a real verisimilitude to the world as well. I mean, there's something pleasing about the utopian kind of hotel lobby aesthetic of a Starship Enterprise a D. But just seeing, you know, we've all some of us have had industrial jobs or we've seen industrial work before, and you can just kind of believe the kind of forklift aesthetic or, or like anybody who's um, worked with computers in an industrial setting know that those aren't like windows 10 tablets. Like a lot right. of times you're working with like green or orange CRT screens. And so it, the whole thing just deemphasizes the fact that, Oh my God, it's, we're in space. You know, we're right. tens of light years away from home. It's amazing. Forget right. that. We're just workaday people, you know, we're like space truckers. And so you can forget about that and you can identify with the people and really get, get scared when they get scared. Well, I think that also, that directorial choice of the people acting like workaday people, right? I mean, yeah. when they, uh, they've been woken up and they've dealt with all this, and then they have a meal, and they're, they're just, they're grab-ass, and then they're, they're just, you know, dropping comments on each other and talking over everybody. There's multiple conversations going on, uh, and they're just, it, it just seems, that, that sort of helps ratchet up attention because when like you say when when they get scared the audience gets scared you know because yeah, they don't yeah. they're not scared of it they're they, this is just their jobs and they're, they're they're going you know doing what they have to do and all of a sudden things get scary yeah uh, the origin of the script and, and really so the film itself is is very interesting um, yeah. and it all kind of starts with uh, ha, have you seen the documentary um, Hodorowski's Dune 
No, it's on my list. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, Great. I have. You, you definitely need to see it. Um, yeah, yeah. In the, in the film, they interview uh, Hodorowski, and he talks about this production of Dune that he was going to make. Uh, this is before the David Lynch one, the Dino De Laurentiis one. And he had gotten all this talent together. Uh, he had gotten um, Mobius and G uh, Giger to both work on the art. And mm -hmm. one of the people that he had gotten to work on special effects was uh, Dan O'Bannon, mm -hmm. who got his start uh, on the film Dark Star with John Carpenter. Right. And so... All of these uh, artists had kind of cross-pollinated and worked with each other. And then, of course, the film, which was way too ambitious, uh, sort of fell apart. And at that point, O'Bannon, who'd been living in Paris working on the film, went home and was broke. Like, he had been there for six months. This thing had fallen apart. And he ended up um, <clears throat> living on the couch of a co-writer and friend uh, named Ronald Shusett. And they started working on this idea that O'Bannon had for this script. And he had had the idea for an alien monster in Dark Star. <laughs> he was frustrated because in Dark Star, in which he also played a role, um, they had no money. Um, and the alien was literally <clears throat> a beach ball in yeah. that movie. And so he wanted to do like a scary version of Dark Star, but hopefully, you know, with studio money and have a creature. And he, he'd been influenced by this art, this particular um, painting that he had seen of Giger's of this strange creature, which you know, we come to know today as the xenomorph from the Alien films. And so the two had worked out this script, uh, originally called Star Beast and later retitled to Alien, and nobody in Hollywood wanted this script. It was too weird. It was too gory. And they were about two steps from selling it to Roger Corman to make into right. a B-movie until uh, a friend of theirs uh, sort of sent it to Walter Hill, uh, of course, the famous Walter Hill, uh, 48 Hours, The Warriors, uh, writer, producer, director. And he and his uh, producing partners, uh, David Glear and Gordon Carroll, uh, basically picked it up, rewrote it, um, changed a lot of the dialogue, which uh, was a point of contention for Dan O'Bannon, and added a few side elements and then pitched it to Fox as this you know thing in the wake of Star Wars. Like, this is, hey, this is a sci-fi movie that could be really successful. And it was sort of um, off to the races uh, from there uh, until Ridley Scott himself was attached. And Ridley Scott was like, he was not the first choice for director. He was about five or six people back behind right. even Walter Hill himself. Right. Um, but I think it was just the strength of the work that he had done, both in making The Duelists a good film, but also working with very little money. I think Fox was very interested in <laughs> making a space movie for as little uh, money as they possibly could. Well, and, you know, the the... The money that they did have is on the screen. It's on the screen um, in, you know, it's really, it, it, it's, even though they're on a ship and they, they are traveling throughout the ship as they hunt and then are hunted, um, the, 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 there's a lot of darkness. So there's a lot of scenes where, you know, things are in shadows or, and you can't really see very well. Um, but the film is nevertheless sort of seen oriented um uh, on on the alien ship when they first find the 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 uh, the larger alien and, and then the eggs for the xenomorph and all that uh for the face hugger um they uh um i mean and then you know the scene around the table it's very it's a it's not a, a movie even though it it moves around a lot it's still still is sort of very scene oriented uh, up until uh sigourney weaver ripley in in the escape pod at the end. Um, it, it, it picks, it picks locations and just stays there. Um, and I think, 
and, and whatever money they did have is on the screen in those scenes. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and and of course they were the, the ace in the hole here is is H.R. Giger. Oh yeah, absolutely. You can't talk about the design of this film without talking about him. Yeah. No, I mean people hadn't seen anything like that before. You know, most people. Um, he, you know, he was not as far as I, I think he was. He had some following in Europe, but still not even very big at the time. Um, yeah. And obviously, this sort of catapulted him to fame, and and you know, not just because it was eerie, but because it was different, because people hadn't seen really this kind of thing before. This. Um, you know, I guess almost, I don't know, modern day Hieronymus Bosch, I guess. Uh, um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I had uh, always known that he was the, um, had designed the alien and some elements of the film, but, uh, it wasn't until I was researching it for this show that I found out how involved he was with the process. Like he was there, uh, basically before the shoot, you know, for months, uh, designing things. And then even once it was all set up, like you mentioned, um, uh, the alien uh, ship, you know, the horseshoe and the uh, space jockey's chamber, you know, he was involved in um, the airbrushing and painting of uh, all the scenes. Um, uh-huh. He designed top to bottom uh, and helped build the alien costume and the eggs. Like he was, he was right down in there, like working as a, a scenic artist, like for yeah. the shoot of the film. Well, and it, it shows and it paid off for the film and for him. You know, it's interesting. I don't think that you asked me about the sequels. Alien, like I say, I don't think of it as a science fiction movie. It certainly has science fiction trappings, but it's, to me, sure. just a horror film. The subsequent films really are not horror films. Um, and I think that's that's really sort of the disconnect. I mean, this, the second film, Aliens, the John, James Cameron production is, um, I, I mean, I guess it's a war movie. It's a shoot 'em up it's, it, it's not a horror film, I don't think. Right. Um, right. And... and and it sort of loses that thread, and it's, it becomes much more, uh, certainly with, with Prometheus and Covenant, becomes much more in the realm of science fiction, um, which is not a good or a bad thing. It's just, it just, yeah, sure. It's removed the sequels from the original uh, in a way that, I guess, is just sort of interesting. Um, and I guess it may be good, but uh, I don't know. You don't see a lot of films, you don't see a lot of horror movies um, that are subtle, right? It's really sort of odd to say that Alien is subtle because it has, you know, some very graphic elements. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) But But it's like music, though. It's there, there are... um... The quiet moments, you know, that help accentuate the, the punch when the when the music gets loud uh, or the, or fast. Yeah. And I have to really credit Ridley Scott for that for this. You know, he has this in all of his films, but I think he really understands um, that rhythm and the, the, the difference between the lows and the highs. And all of his all the things that he'll do in his later career are already on display here. The mm-hmm. sort of languorous dissolves that he has uh, in between scenes and the sort of. Um, sort of a amorphic sense of time. Uh, something that really fascinated me was that he, of course, was um, really fascinated um, and inspired by um, Giger's art. And in the alien ship sequences, and whenever they were shooting something that was you know, drawn from uh, Giger's stuff, he wanted to capture the quality of light 
that Giger had in his um, airbrushings and his paintings as much as possible. And so I know on the alien ship set, he had people um, going around um, creating smoke. They had like almost like these, um, you know, Catholic thurible's. Uh, mm-hmm. getting smoke in the air and then he would just take a big square of cardboard and sort of wave it all around so they could sort of permeate the sort of bloom of light that he would see in uh, Giger's art. That is those scenes in, in in this alien ship. I remember the smoke very vividly because it passes through the uh, the, the 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 blue laser light layer mm-hmm. and yeah. it just it, it's it's arresting. It's it's beautiful imagery uh and also sort of spooky at the same time and and uh, gives you a sense of the unknown and uh yeah it, it, he did a spectacular job the, the scenic design the direction all of it is of a piece and um it's really interesting to read the negative reviews <laughs> contemporaneous to the film you know was it one of the, one reviewer i think it might have been david denby pretty much said that this movie lacks you know all any value whatsoever to society and it's turned me off from movies period <laughs> like that's pretty strong yeah <laughs> uh, especially considering that he went on to write for another 35 years so apparently he wasn't that uh, yeah. <clears throat> that turned off by uh, films um yeah. what do you think um just i mean we'll talk about uh, some of the real negative reviews that i discovered in my research a little later on but what do you think what quality did the film have or what was it bringing that really turned some people off or just took them out of the paradigm of film watching that, that they understood that they just couldn't, they had to refuse it in this way. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but maybe it's because the film looked like a science fiction film, but it's Mm -hmm. not. Um, -hmm. Maybe, they didn't expect a haunted house in space. Although, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream is kind of a hint that yeah. this may not be your typical science fiction film. But I think maybe, I mean, this was, you say, 79, right? So so it was right. in the wake of Close Encounters and Star Wars, these... <laughs> That's true. You know, these very... Um, I mean, Close Encounters is heavier than Star Wars, but these, they're light. Uh, they're light movies. And I mean, light, like physical light. I mean, they're they're bright um, um, and, and uh, there's a sense of, of wonder about them, uh, at least in part. In Alien, there's none of that. It's it's dark. It's morose. It's yeah, it's yeah. It's almost yeah. The, the the lack of wonder, like we said before, is sort of what defines it and makes it compelling, at least to me. Well, yeah, and I think that, and and of course, there was there were a couple of instances of gore in the film. Um, and I think that probably turned people off blood and guts. And when you're not really expecting that you're, I mean, it's not a slasher film, but those are the hallmarks of a slasher film. You know, that, yeah, that yeah. graphic violence. Um, but to me, and, and I don't, I don't like violence for violence sake. And I don't, uh, I'm not drawn to slasher movies and things like that. But at the same time, aliens, and I may think it may seem not to be the case almost 50 years later. But for me, the alien scene with, with John Hurt was, was, uh, oh, John Hurt was, um, it was groundbreaking. It was different. We, this is not yeah. something we'd seen before. Um, and, and in fact, when they repeat it in the sequels, it's just really why, 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. because it's expected, well, so what? I, I just, I've seen this before. I don't need to see it again. I could take right. seeing it the first time because I'd never seen it before, and it was gruesome and and involving and moving and horrifying. Um, yeah. And I like, when I watch movies, I like them to do something to me. I don't care if they make me feel uncomfortable. I don't care if they make me sad. I just want them to have some emotional impact. You know, make me laugh, make me cry, do something. And that movie, yeah. you know, made my skin crawl in part. And, and that's a, <laughs> you know, I think that's a good thing. It gives, at least, you know, I don't get to do that in real life. Good. That's great. Yeah, right. <laughs> so let me experience it through, through cinema. And it, yeah. it, it did that. But I, I guess that might be why, you know, that, that expectation of a science fiction film and you get a horror movie um, coupled with the fact that these science fiction movies of the era were very bright and, 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 uh, and light and Alien was the opposite of that. Yeah. There was no and I, don't, I don't know. If, I don't know if you've seen or if you remember the theatrical trailer, but they're not lying about this film. Like, they're letting you know exactly what you're going to get. This is the famous trailer. I think you can see it on YouTube where it's sort of it's uh, it's very um, there's no talking at all in it. And it's sort of panning over this rocky surface and it pulls back to reveal that it's uh, an egg. Um, they didn't have the egg, alien egg design at the time. It's just like a chicken's egg or something. But, right, right. And, and then it starts to crack and then we start to see these very quick cuts, which must have been very, you know, we think about the MTV movie style of filmmaking now, but just these very quick frames of what's going on in, in the in the film and the thrumming sort of music with the scream-like uh, electronic strings. And it, the, the trailer itself is like heroin. Like you're like, oh boy, this is going to be a scary film. Yeah, I can see what you're saying, but I don't. I definitely don't think that they were trying to <laughs> trick people into thinking that this was oh, going to no. be some. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I don't think they were, but I think people's expect. You know, you would think critics would see trailers before they go see films, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe they also avoid them because you know they they want to be able to make a decision just based on the the film and not the marketing for it. I don't know. Yeah, but. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so you know, maybe it's expectations, maybe it's not. Uh, but I, it's interesting that I mean, there were good reviews, but there were there were a lot of bad reviews. There certainly weren't you know ninety seven point five percent of good reviews um, that we see now for Alien. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Aliens sort of considered a classic. But what's interesting uh, is that you know the the follow ups generally are not. Although I think Aliens was fairly popular. Oh yeah, for sure, James. But to me, it, it was—it wasn't the same movie. You don't want it to be the same movie. But to me, it was a, a, a departure. Um, it sort of took this this alien creature and multiplied it, and, and to me, it lessened the impact of the creature because this one creature was almost impossible to kill. I mean, this thing gets gets thrown out into the vacuum of space and continues to fight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right? You know, it's got a harpoon through the chest and the thing's out in space and it's continuing to fight. So this, this is an, uh, just a, an unbelievably um, strong creature and, and powerful creature. And then we get to aliens and there are lots of them and the Marines can defeat them. You know, they, they take their casualties, but I know it just, 
it lessened the, the impact of the creature for me, seeing aliens. And, it, and I say, it, I felt like it was just a shoot 'em up It was well done and all, but it just wasn't my thing. And Cameron, in between Terminator 2 and Aliens, is kind of at that time, he was the master of taking a, a sequel and kind of going in a different direction and kind of not necessarily thematically living up to the first film, but definitely doing something different with it. Um, I, I love T2, but it totally throws T1 into a cocked hat in terms of yeah. uh, its message of like, you know, how to, what, what fate is and whether you are a slave to your fate or not. Like they don't fit together at all. They're both great movies, right. but camera was good at the, I think is good uh, at the commercialization of ideas. Yeah. Worked for Corman for a long time. I mean, he saw Aliens in Alien and was able to, you know, Aliens probably did, uh, I would guess, a lot more business than the original. Yeah, I'm sure it did. He saw that and went, that's going on a lunchbox. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> and, you know, I guess there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, it's just, to me, the, the, the first film was the more interesting of all the ones that followed. I don't believe I've seen the Alien and Predator movies. <laughs> I can't um, even remember if I have. That's how, that's how yeah. uh, you know, unimpactful they are. Right. We should talk about the cast, I think, definitely, uh, at least for a little bit. Um, we talked about Tom Skerritt before. Something that, for me, shows that the cast and crew knew that they had something on their hands uh, here that was good was the enthusiasm of the members of the cast. Um, I read a story that said that Tom Skerritt originally was offered the role and he read the script um, before it, bit, it had been rewritten by Walter Hill and didn't like it. And then after the rewrite, uh, he went back to the producers and said, okay, I'll do it. And also, can I give you some of my salary for some points on the back end? Because I think this is going to do really great. Um, he was very enthusiastic. And Yefi wow. Koto uh, also, I guess he was friends or he was an acquaintance of O'Bannon's um, before he had even wrote the script. And as he was developing the script, he was telling Koto about it. And Koto was like, I want to be in that movie. And he actually waited for years uh, to get the chance to um, to play a role in the film. So the people who were, who were in it knew that you know, they were working on something that was really great. Um, of course, the it's an ensemble cast, um, and you don't even really know who's going to live, uh, which is really um, high, uh, raises the tension in the film. And yeah. you definitely don't know that it's going to be uh, Ellen Ripley because you know Sigourney Weaver's not a star at this point. This is her first like right. really major role in a in a motion picture, and she sort of falls into the role of uh, the sort of de facto lead in the film uh, just by the virtue of surviving to the end. Not only that, I would suggest that in the late 70s, in that era of filmmaking, uh, it's less than likely that the, the, the ultimate survivor is going to be one of the two female actors in the film. This was not a thing at the time. It just, that's just not the way films were being made, you know, stories were being told at the time. Yeah. On that subject, what do you think about the idea of the, the final girl trope in horror? Do you think that Ripley f fits into that trope? Well, how long has that trope been around now? I mean... So it's really interesting. I was looking into this a little bit, and when you think about the kind of modern horror that we expect, and I'm not talking about like Frankenstein or like 50s hammer horror, you know, like a slasher or a monster film, it's mm -hmm. really like 74, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was really the advent of that. And that term, The Final Girl, is from a book by an author named Carol Clover, 
Uh, she wrote a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws from 1992. <laughs> and so that's she came up with that term and then started saying, oh, yeah, Laurie Strode is a final girl. Um, Ellen Ripley is a final girl and so on and so forth. But there are a lot of people who disagree with specifically Ripley being a final girl simply because she doesn't meet um, some of the characteristics or they just don't think that she represents what you know that final girl trope is supposed to be. I don't think she does either because a lot of times that I think that final girl trope uh, is based on a level of sexuality, which is not to say that Ellen Ripley doesn't have her own you know level of of, of uh, sexual appeal or whatever. But there's there's a little in, in the dinner scene. Yafit Koto makes some some remarks and you know he he's uh, some some sexual innuendo and all of that. Maybe not innuendo, right. just <laughs> flat out sexual remarks. And but. Right. Um, but it's all, I don't want to say necessarily in fun, but it's just, you know, people who know each other and they're just, they're, they're, they're just talking. There's no, you know, I think the final girl is based on, on um, vulnerability, right? Yeah, That here's a female character who's vulnerable typically tends to, 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 to be sexually appealing, has a relationship with a male character, um, and, and somehow manages to, to survive to the end of, of whatever ordeal they're, they're going through. I don't yeah. think, yes, Ellen Ripley's a female character, but there's no, there's no romance in the film. There's not really any, any sexual tension or anything sexual in, in the, in the film. It's, um, She's just a strong person who happens to be a female. And, yeah. um, and she also has one of the better defined personalities. Her character has one of the better defined personalities in the film. She's yeah. a by-the-book kind of person. And <laughs> yeah. She's kind of the kind of person that, uh, you know, in a normal situation, you might be a little annoyed by or be like, oh, boy, well, Ripley's yeah. going to give us a hard time about this. But right. when, when the shit goes down, <laughs> she, she's also the type of person that you want around for those exact same reasons. Right, exactly. And and it turns out that, you know, was she a by-the-book kind of person? That It comes off that way in Alien. But also, yeah. she was she was wanting to enforce rules, like not letting... The crew, her fellow crew person, back on the ship with this alien attached to its face that yeah. they knew nothing <laughs> right. about. It's not just maybe that she's ewing to the letter of the law. It's maybe that this is a common sense thing to do, and she does yeah. seem very common sensible in in the rest of the film and in dealing with with the creature and and you know wanting to destroy the ship and then deciding, oh geez, I can't destroy the ship. It's in my escape pod. <laughs> You know, she's just very matter-of-fact about everything at the same time that she's experiencing this sheer terror and wanting to yeah. survive. So I don't yeah. really feel like she fits that that trope in that way. I uh, <laughs> I, I really love how, uh, and this is set up well in the script and, and in the action of the film itself, how she starts off as a very sort of ordered, um, put-together person, uh, like you said, professional and then as the as the movie goes on, we see the effects of the stress on her to the point where she's screaming, you bitch, at the computer. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, the yeah. computer can't hear her, but it's just right. like w yeah. we feel this just human outburst of like, yeah, she's really uh, feeling something here. <laughs> like she's really going through this. Yeah, it, it was incredible. 
incredibly well directed and, and extremely well acted. I, I think uh, the cast, all of the cast, uh, w- was terrific. You mentioned sex before. You know, I've always heard that you know one of the most unique and chilling aspects of the film are, are the themes of well, not only parasitism, but you know, a reversal of the sexual violence stereotype. That is, that you know, an, an alien can rape and impregnate a man. Do you think right. that that is what's something that uh, stands out the most of the, the more Freudian aspects? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, that when I, yeah, I mean, there wasn't uh, traditional sex <laughs> in the film, right? right. Um, but I think, and I don't even know if if people, if audiences watching the film would necessarily think consciously about that. But I think it's a very visceral thing that 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 a, a person, in this case, a man, has been physically violated with with a you know. I'm going to say penetration. <laughs> I mean, his sure. his body was penetrated, and and uh, yeah, I, I think that absolutely um, part of the the thematic underpinning of the film. Uh, uh, I mean, I think it really uh, it. I think it helps generate the horror, the terror that the characters feel and that the audience feels. I think this is one of the things that really repels them, and you know. In a way, it's kind of. I feel like it's a good thing that men would have a visceral, visceral reaction to this, and maybe it can, you know, make them a little more empathetic um, to real world concerns. Something that really gets me about the film, and I'm not sure. You know, if you look at this um, in terms of the entire series, I mean, I think it kind of falls apart. But there's a real. I feel like there's no God in the in the uh, alien universe or at least in the universe of the movie alien or if there is he hates you he hates us yeah. because there's this creature that has uh evolved past any kind of compassion or morality that can even kill you when you are defending yourself like this, this idea that sure you've got a gigantic ore ship and a you know ftl drive or however the ship you know uses itself um, you've got science and you've got weapons and technology, but there's just this thing that's just going to kill you. There's nothing you can do. You can scream all you want. It's just going to rip your head off and it's going to lay an egg in you. And uh, how could it have, what kind of God would let something like this be created? Or even like what kind of universe do we live in that a creature would evolve just merely to prey upon, you know, people who don't want to harm it? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I think there are a couple of uh, different, elements uh, to what you're saying, too. And I, I thought about some of these things when I watched it recently in preparation for us having this conversation. Um, the alien creature does not, and later films sort of address this in a way that you don't know is entirely fulfilling from a scientific standpoint, but in Alien itself, it doesn't, when you think about it, it doesn't really make sense that a creature like this would evolve. Um, like like I mean, its life cycle? Well, I mean, just over the course of time, imagine, just imagine the environment it must live in to have developed these these traits, the, the, the you know, bleeding acid, right, and and and, oh, right. and you know, having you know, hinged jaws that can tear out you know a part of another creature. I mean, what environment must it have lived in for those traits to evolve and stick around? Because they were, I mean, obviously they would be, they would be valuable 
I guess, in any environment. But, you know, we don't really need that here on Earth right now. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, so those traits, you know, if they got, if random mutations d- diminished those traits and they disappeared, the creature, the, the species would still survive. So it doesn't make sense from a sort of an evolutionary standpoint that this creature would evolve unless it was, you know, it just evolved in hell. Um, right. I mean, I mean, this clearly would be an apex predator. You would hope. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, or there's... or maybe it's not even viable biologically. Like you know, the movies and the sequels go to great lengths to yeah. emphasize the fact that it's engineered. So it's just something right. that wouldn't necessarily occur in nature. But this theme of this is another theme that's in the films that the idea of the powers that be or the you know the greedy uh, greediness and greed of humanity and, or even um, aliens in creating weapons. Um, disregarding the value of human life, um, you know, it being a result of that. That's something that in eight films, I can't believe that we, it's not that I want them to dig into it more, but <laughs> I can't believe that it's been dug, hasn't been dug into more. The idea of the company, like they want it for a weapon. Who are they at war with? Like we right. never find out if <laughs> it's the other humans or if there are other alien races. It's just this idea was planted by, you know, Walter Hill and his writing partners of, oh, we need this like, yeah, corporate overlords are bad, but it never really gets developed in all the years since Alien. Right. And, my, you know, my my feeling about it, and this is just from having watched it, is that it's not, it's not necessarily for weapons of war, um, for like nation states, so much as it would be for terrorists and criminal bosses, you know, criminal hmm. syndicates, um, okay. the, the, this, this great tech just to, because all they, all the corporation cares about, they don't, they don't care about the weaponry or defense side of it. All they care about is making money from the weaponry or defense side. Yeah. Of it. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, to me, this seems like a holy black market kind of thing. Maybe not. I just, an idea that sort of pops up. Uh, when I think about it, and, and really the shady nature, because apparently uh, of the corporation sending Ash, the robot, to the android, to to make sure that they get the alien back, even though it violates laws, it violates yeah. human laws that are on the books that were told that in the film. So I mean, because you're supposed to, you're supposed to quarantine alien life, you don't bring it aboard. No matter what it is, a microbe, you're not bringing anything aboard because obviously bringing something back to Earth could be a terrible, terrible thing. Um, So, yeah, you know, it it makes sense later, I think, even though the films weren't good, Prometheus and Covenant, to talk about the the alien being engineered because it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary standpoint, but it also doesn't make sense really – um, it's, it would sort of be lazy writing for there to be this predator that all it did was prey. That there's, I mean, I guess, what is this, a wild animal? Um, I, I mean, I guess lions and tigers and bears attack us. Um, but, but lions and tigers and bears also care for their young, right? You sure. see some <laughs> level of, of, you know, not human emotion, but some emotion. There's some, some caretaking aspects there's nothing in the alien it's just it, it's it's like a machine yeah. and that, that, that doesn't it's it's tough to get your head around it works for one film you know yeah right yeah 
I mean, it's it's an insect, really. I mean, it you know walks on two legs, but it's an insect that lays its young inside another host, and then insects don't care for their young. They're well, not mammals. Right. That's, yeah, that's true. But there is something yeah. to be said for brain size, right? Well, I, 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 it's got a big, <laughs> it's got a big head, but maybe it doesn't have it's a. It's got big a really brain, big head. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, least, well, for, for me, the least impressive scenes, uh, shots of the alien. Were at the end where you actually got to see all of it once or twice. Yeah, you know, yeah. those were the least impressive because at that point it looked like, oh, it's a guy in a suit. It was yeah. so strange and alien with the with the the the, the, the misshapen head or, or the you know the arcing head, the no eyes was it's tremendous. That's another thing too. What 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 is the sense? that this creature has because it doesn't have as far as we can tell a visual sense <laughs> right yeah like how do, how does it even see right. and i think that they they knew that uh i mean they definitely knew that when they were making the film that it was scarier uh if you if you couldn't see it um right the guy um the guy they had playing the alien a guy named uh, balaji badejo uh mm-hmm. was like you know seven feet tall himself uh, but the alien only has four minutes of screen time, and I think they knew that that was the way to go. There's actually there's like a deleted scene or some test footage that you can see uh, on YouTube or on the DVD uh, where you can see him, um, the alien, walking up to Veronica Cartwright, uh, <laughs> like on his on his he's kind of crab walking, yeah, and he stands up and he's very imposing when he stands up, but it doesn't it looks very silly, and I think they it's knew silly, that they yeah. had to, to deal with that, yeah. I wanted to talk really fast uh, about Veronica Cartwright and just how good she is in this film and how thankless her role is, but it's a role that we really need. You know, she's, I don't know if you'd call her a scream queen. <laughs> she's like a professional uh, crier. I mean, she got her start uh, early in The Birds, and of course she was in the remake of Body Snatchers, and she's sort of that actress, that woman who's like, freaking out you know and you right. just the other characters want her to shut up but she really is the voice of reason at one part a point she's like let's get in the shuttle and get out of here like why yeah. are you guys making yeah. some stupid plan to catch this thing right. Let, right. let's just go right yeah. yeah and i think she's absolutely a vital character and i think um the thing about her being just frantically scared is that she has every reason to be frantically scared. Yeah, I mean, we it's get one it. thing yeah. for somebody to be freaking out for no good reason. When you got a great reason, hey, freak out. I mean, do what you yeah. got to do. And, you know, I, I think other than Ripley, almost all of the characters, maybe Ash, I, a lot of the characters are sort of, in th- the actors are sort of in thankless roles, right? Um, mm. I mean, that's not to say that they're not good. They all are. They all do what they're supposed to do. Uh, and and they do it well, but there's not a lot of character development sort of other than Ripley, right? Yeah, They're just yeah. sort of characteristics. Uh, and like for Veronica, Veronica Cartwright, it's, okay, yeah, she's a screen queen, I guess, but she's also, like you say, the voice of reason, too. She's the one saying, okay, time to get out. Yeah, you know, right. Eddie Murphy <laughs> did a bit with um, when he said, you know, Black people and white people look at threats like this completely differently. You know, if, if black people were in a in a, uh, in a in a in a house, they were looking to buy a house, um, and 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 you know, the realtor said, you know, and, and the house is haunted, and they hear a voice, and he's like, it's a great house, too bad we can't stay. Yeah, we gotta <laughs> go. Know, we're leaving. <laughs> yeah, right. We're out of here. You know, and uh, I mean, Veronica Cartwright, you're you're exactly right. She says we gotta get out of here, and she's right. Right. And it's crazy that they don't. I mean, it is it, that is kind of a crazy decision at that point. But yeah. I guess 
they're also <laughs> they're also dealing with the fact that if they get out of there, they lose a lot of their income. Yeah, that's true, and it that drives them. I, I'm I, we can talk, I guess, uh, right now about maybe the parts where the movie doesn't quite, I mean, it's a very good movie, but maybe it's got several tiny little flaws perhaps. And like one of them for me is we know that they're acting in their own self-interest a lot of the time. We also know that they don't understand the threat necessarily. Like they're looking for the alien. They think it's a tiny little thing and it's huge and it, you know, tears apart Harry Dean Stanton. But when Dallas decides to go into the air vent to look for the thing uh, in a scene that they shot in, in one day, it was all shot in one day. Um, it's, it seems like the stupidest decision ever and yeah. it's terrifying. It's a great work by, um, Ridley Scott in making what is essentially a guy just sitting in a tube in the dark and then Veronica Cartwright just looking at a screen and going, get out of there, get out of there. Yeah. Like yeah. it's fraught. Like it is one of the scariest scenes in the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But why would he go in there? <laughs> like, just... yeah. yeah, it's. I don't know. Chalk it up to machismo, to to uh, leadership responsibility. Yeah, how you big know? are these bonuses we're talking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably bigger for the captain, right? Um, right. But but you know, at that point, the captain hasn't seen. Has he? At that point, he hasn't seen the the larger alien. He knows it because. Yeah, no. Well, nobody has because they specifically. Um, I've heard this on the commentary on the DVD that they had. Uh, they had boarded a, a scene where they discover uh, Harry Dean Stanton's um, body, I think, or at least they find like a lot of blood. And instead they just cut that and have it cut right to um, Parker showing us, you know, we do, you know, the, the gun or the thing that he was carrying and just saying, you know, we didn't find anything like there was nothing there. Right. right, so, right. so at this point they, they haven't seen it. They don't know that it is a giant monster. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. It makes it a little bit more believable than that he would, you know, you know, if he thinks it's just a small thing, <laughs> yes, it's burst out from inside Harry uh, uh, John Hurt, but it's not. It's not. We don't know how formidable it is yet. It, it was making little chittering sounds and ran away. Right. <laughs> so it's gross, and didn't but to have yeah. eyes, gross. <laughs> but you know, maybe maybe not as formidable as you know. Maybe the cat will catch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I also think this is a tiny little blemish, but I also think that it's really kind of superfluous that Ash is a robot. Like, it's very cool. Um, it leads to to Bishop in Aliens, which is one of my favorite characters um, in sci-fi. But if you took that out, it wouldn't really matter. And not just him being um, a synthetic being or a robot, but also him being sort of a company stooge. Um, it was one of the criticisms that O'Bannon had about the rewrite is that he didn't like it because it, it's what he calls like the Russian spy. Like you have like these thriller movies and there's some kind of plot. They're trying to stop this or that. But then they find out, you know, in the end or beginning of uh, end of the second act, beginning of the third act, that there's a spy or that there's somebody they have to catch. And right. it doesn't really have any effect on the plot at all. I think I, my guess is there would be two reasons maybe for a writer to think about including that character. One is if you're trying to you to a, uh, a realistic vision of things, it makes sense that if you've got a guy with an alien strapped to his face, who's not, who no longer seems to be conscious, maybe the smartest thing in the world isn't to bring that guy and that alien onto your ship. 
All right? right. I mean, that just makes sense. It's just common sense. Yeah, you feel bad for the guy. You want to help the guy. But what are you going to do? You're going to put the rest of the crew at risk. That doesn't seem yeah. like a smart right. idea. So how do you get him aboard? And, of course, Ash is the solution to that. doesn't have to be a robot in order to do that. The sure. second thing would be after he's found out, he gives exposition about why he's there. Not yeah, that exposition right. is the greatest thing in the world, but, you know, they could have found well, yeah. that out in other ways. May, perhaps now, now perhaps Sigourney Weaver finds, you know, if he was not a robot, maybe she could find, you know, his orders in his bunk or whatever. You know, there are other ways yeah. to do that. But I think, you know, the, the notion of the sci-fi setting of the film sort of encourages that kind of thing. I, I, I get the sense that... The, the the opinion that it that Ash didn't need to be there at all as a spy, and he didn't certainly even if he was there need to be a robot, but eh, it didn't bother me so much. I thought it, actually I thought sure. it was interesting in a way because it it spoke to the fact that okay there are two villains in this film. The f- first and obvious villain is the alien, the right. the the eponymous alien, but the second one is the avaricious Ameri- uh, 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 human company that, that yeah, is trying to sure. bring this, yeah. you know. Um, so that, you know, I, I, I liked that aspect of the Ash character, that he was there for an inimical reason, for, you know, reasons simply really of greed, um, yeah. which in a way sort of provides a counterpoint for... Um, the idea that these that these people will go hunting down the alien because they wanted to save their their bonuses. <laughs> sure, you know? okay. yeah, I can but, see that. Yeah, and without it, you know, we'd lose. I was amazed to find out that that speech uh, was basically written on the day the one that Ian Holmes uh, home gives when he's just the head and he talks really? about. Uh, yeah, he talks about, you know, how perfect the creature is. And there's, of course, the twist of the knife where he's like, he's dying, but he's like, you guys are all going to die, too. Like, I'm not yeah. going to lie to you. Like, I don't think you're yeah. going to get out of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was pretty great. I believe I've read, but I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that the the most memorable scene with the with the uh, alien popping out of John Hurt's chest mm-hmm. um that the crew, that the cast was not informed of exactly what would be happening. Yeah. Some of their reactions were really genuine with the splatter of the blood and all. Yeah. They knew that, uh, you know, what was on the page that, you know, monster comes out of, of Kane. But other than that, they didn't know. And they weren't allowed uh, on set really when it was being set up. And so, and it was all shot in one morning uh, and basically in one take. They did it with four cameras. And of course, there's the famous story about how they told Veronica Cartwright that there might be a little blood. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, a, a tube, a jet tube of blood in there uh, with yeah. also um, squibs that would blow viscera out. And they were all just covered. And so their, yeah. their responses are totally genuine. And you can tell, uh, I think it's it, it absolutely works, but you can tell there are very quick cuts uh, putting oh, yeah. all that sort of their reactions together. Because I'm sure if it goes on for even more than a few seconds, they're like, all right, fuck this. Give me my agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can only get that natural reaction for so long before they're right. like, uh, John, are you OK? <laughs> Yeah. Right, right. But yeah, that's that's all true. Yeah, I had read that at some point. So yeah, and Veronica Cartwright's reaction really is kind of memorable too. I mean, she just yeah. looks yeah. repulsed. 
<laughs> and they, I also uh, read that to have the alien uh, run away, um, they basically had a split, like a groove in the table, uh, and a guy on like a skateboard or a dolly under the table. So he just sort of dollies himself out, you know, with uh, the puppet on a on a pole or a stand. Yeah. And right. then they blew air through <laughs> through a tube to make the tail sort of whip around as it sort of right. streaks out across the table, which is yeah. just a, such a simple effect, but it works so well. Yeah, it really did. And this is in the age, I mean, we had, we'd had Star Wars and Close Encounters, but yeah. there's no CGI at this point. <laughs> well, at this point in the show, I usually uh, dial in to check on the state of the robot holocaust. Uh, I have a theory that if a film opens with excessive voiceover or overly long title cards... Or if the film opens over water, you know, that famous helicopter shot where you're opening mm-hmm. over some body of water and it pans up. Uh, I had a previous guest talk about when there's on-the-nose musical choices, or if we yeah. see the first thing we see is the main character. Um, those are all indicators that you're probably watching a pretty bad movie. Um, <laughs> but judged solely by that uh, that very subjective metric, none of those things are present here. Um, of course, yeah. the opening is... Very famous. We have the very distinctive slow building music and the the title uh, described as um, by Ridley Scott as he wanted something hieroglyphic. So he got Steve Frankfurt and Richard Greenberg to design this title sequence where the word alien slowly builds in and we pan across this. You know, it's something they don't do anymore. This sort of matte painting, uh, uh, this beautiful art of a planet. Uh, and then we're up and we're rolling and it's very sparse uh, and it's very it's entirely adequate. So as far as the state of the robot Holocaust, it's clear we've got nothing to worry about at this point. There's not a robot in sight, although my science officer keeps jogging in place randomly. So I, I'm a little worried about that. <laughs> I do think that the that the title sequence is and I don't know if this is intentional or not. You would we would maybe think that it's intentional, but perhaps I'm reading too much into it. The mm. the when the. The, the strokes of the, the letters of Alien just slowly appear and, and form the title. Initially, you don't really know what it is. I mean, it's fairly quickly you can figure out, okay, it's going to be Alien, right? But, right. but it's, you're taking something, you're starting out with essentially, oh, wait a minute, what is that? Before you've ever seen it before, if you, first time you're watching it and, and you see this this little shape appear and then another shape, it doesn't. It's not immediate that you think, oh, it's going to be the word alien necessarily. Right. And so it's 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 you're in space. It's this is unusual. What is this? What's happening? Uh, I, I don't know. So you're going from the unknown to the known. We don't know about this alien. Now we know about this alien. I, I, I don't know. It could be sort of uh, echoic of the of the plot. I guess I don't know. Yeah. It's very certainly also very stylish. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that Scott says I've. Uh, if you listen to the commentary from the 1999 um, DVD, um, he talks a lot about wanting, and I'm not sure what the source of this is, but like these Egyptian elements. Um, he compared the title to hieroglyphics. Um, the I think it's changed in later films, but the corporate, the Weyland Yutani corporate logo, is this sort of cartouche looking thing these these um like wings right. uh, that you'll right. see um and you know spray painting everything in the um cargo holds gold to look sort of like a like a temple or some kind of egyptian tomb mm-hmm. so that was definitely on his mind i think when he was building up what i think is funny is as the title builds it also has the opening you know credits in the players and at one point you just got one little line that looks like an eye and then it says tom scarrett so i thought 
is it I, Tom Skerritt? Is it some <laughs> kind of autobiographical thing about Tom right. Skerritt? Right, right, right. Uh, as we talked about at the top of the show, uh, critics didn't exactly wet their pants on Alien's release. I mean, they might have out of fear, but not out of right. excitement. And uh, I was taken aback at the amount of negative press that I found when I started really digging uh, past the good things that you see from MovieVault.com. Got them again. Uh, Variety's <laughs> review from 1979 had some good things to say, but pic- uh, one thing that stood out for me was that they said that the picture isn't quite good enough to be a combination of The Exorcist and Star Wars, um, but it clearly wants to be. Uh, they also said that the script has more loose ends than the Pittsburgh Steelers, which was probably a killer <laughs> killer reference in 79. Yeah. And they said that the roles were kind of cardboard. Uh, Time Out Magazine said that the film was, uh, quote, an empty bag of tricks whose production values and expensive trickery cannot disguise imaginative poverty, end quote. So I wow. thought that was very fascinating. Uh, yeah, that, that was a hard one. Um, David Denby, as you mentioned before, uh, said, quote, occasionally one sees a film that uses the emotional resources of movies with such utter cynicism that one feels sickened by the medium itself. So yeah. it was certainly the cynicism that uh, turned him off. Uh, he went on to say that, quote, the movie is terrifying, but not in a way that is remotely enjoyable. You know, I mean, the whole idea of people being enjoyed uh, people enjoying films where they get scared is an interesting one. And I don't know yeah, that right. I can sure. entirely explain it, but I know that I have enjoyed it many a time, including with Alien. Um, I think, you know, that, that the one review that talked about it, you know, clearly it wants to be a combination of Star Wars and The Exorcist, I think is completely off the beam. I think this movie has no interest in being Star Wars, none whatsoever. It does sure. want to be The Exorcist. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. the genre that we're talking about. I, I mean, I, I've had people disagree with me. No, it's a science fiction movie with, with horror elements. No, it's a horror movie with science fiction elements. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me it is. And I think, yeah, this, this is The Exorcist. This is the unknown that wants to kill you. Right, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, I agree with you. I would say that Aliens is a sci-fi film with horror uh, influences, yeah. but yeah, yeah. flip flop for the first one certainly. Uh, well, as you mentioned before, Siskel and Ebert were critical of it. Uh, they actually said on their show, sneak previews, uh, what you had said before that it was just a haunted house movie uh, in space, uh, and they said it was disappointing in comparison to other space films like two thousand one. Uh, Star Wars uh, and Close Encounters, although Ebert would later uh, put the film on his great movies list and give it four stars. What do you think about critics doubling back or backtracking on their initial initial reviews? It's a little bit of a cheat, let's say. It's kind of a thing where I guess it depends on your motivations, right? If you, you you see a movie and you hate it. You just hate it. And you don't hate it just because of subjective reasons like this is, I don't like horror movies, so I hated this movie. Uh, but you, you thought it was a bad movie, which is what Siskel and Ebert were saying and these other reviews were saying. It's not a good movie. They weren't saying it's a great movie, but I couldn't stand it because I don't like it. Um, it's a bit of a cheat if everybody else in the world thinks it's great at some point and you say, Oh, okay, I'm going to change. I don't want to be on the wrong side of of this, right? I, want, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I don't want to be the lone voice. But if it's a genuine desire to say, well, maybe I missed something in this, uh, well, then go back and, and, and watch it again and see. And, of course, times change, right? I mean, Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that has a lot to do with it. When you contextualize a movie, I mean, if Psycho, if Hitchcock's Psycho came out 
in 2018, having <laughs> you know no history, it, it would be a, it would be considered a yawner, probably. Yeah, right. And it, and it did. It came out in uh, what was it, 96 or 97? Gus Van Sant did the uh, shot for shot remake of Psycho, and people were right. like, nah. right, <laughs> yeah, right. And it's like, but in 1960, this was brand new. This was yeah. something we hadn't seen. Um, and it's, if you watch Psycho, it's a it's a fascinating film for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is Anthony Perkins doesn't appear in the film for quite some time. Oh, and, yeah. you know, the, the the initial plot is, you know, is, uh, um, was it Vera Miles? Not Vera Miles. Uh, uh, Janet Lee mm-hmm. robbing a bank. I mean, <laughs> I'm, the first time I ever watched Psycho, I was like, wait a minute, I thought this was Psycho. What is this movie what, about? Yeah. <laughs> what is this movie about? Right. But it, again, it's the thing with Alien is it, it, it's uh, again terrible romantic comedy, but it's a great horror film. Um, yeah, and yeah. you can't you can't you can't divorce it uh, a movie from its genre. I don't think. I mean, there are, there are kinds of movies. I don't like slasher movies. I'm sure that there are examples of slasher movies out there that are that are great for that genre. You know, that are cinematically viable and 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 more than just viable but but good but you know, that's not my thing i'm not going to go watch those kinds of movies right. um yeah. you know that's just that's just me but that that's not what these i don't know they, them going back and looking at them yeah again his review their their review is just a haunted house in space the word i the thing i take issue with is the word just yeah right it's not right. just a haunted house in space it's the greatest haunted house in space we've ever seen, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, there's a there's the old argument that there are five stories or only seven stories, you know, man versus man, man versus himself, man versus nature, right. whatever, and right. we're just retelling them. Well, that's fine, but the, the key isn't in the underlying basic story. The key is in the execution of it. And Alien was executed with a tremendous amount of creativity and artistry. Yeah, without question. A lot of people uh, at the time thought so as well because it was uh, nominated for Best Art Direction at the Academy Awards, and it won the Academy Award for Visual Effects, and it went on to many other uh, accolades. It won a uh, Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Direction, and Best Supporting Actress for Veronica Cartwright. Uh, It was nominated for BAFTAs. Uh, It won the Hugo Award that year for Best Dramatic Presentation. And something we haven't talked about at all, which is a huge part of the film, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score uh, was nominated for a Golden Globe and for a Grammy Award. I did not know that, but it doesn't surprise me. It's a good score. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not it's not intrusive. Um, I think it really uh, um, it it's a um, it backs up what you're seeing on screen, but not in an intrusive way. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I'm, so art best art direction set decoration it was nominated for and lost to all that jazz. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's really which, interesting. which was fine, I'm sure, which was very good. Yeah, well, yeah, all that jazz was a good film, but it's really interesting to compare. The thing of it is with it, and I, you know, I would have to watch all that jazz again. I haven't seen it in years. But the thing of it is, when you compare H.R. Giger's artwork to whatever was in all that jazz, I'm going to guess that, and I'm, I, again, don't remember all that jazz all that well, but I, one of the reasons I don't remember is because there was nothing astonishing that I'd never seen before in my life. Otherwise, I would remember it. <laughs> right? I <laughs> yeah, mean, that, right. That mostly takes place in the theater and, you know. I, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it's a beautiful looking film, but with with H. R. Giger, it, it 
was a, it was this this brand new thing that also was vital to the success of the film. I mean, without 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 H.R. Giger's art design, uh, um, this movie could easily fall apart. Sure. If it was like a wiggly octopus or, you know, whatever some of the earlier designs that they were thinking of before they landed on uh, Giger's art, if it had been like that, it might have still been a good film, but it would not have been as good as it became. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, uh, it, it was, uh, it, it, it contributed in many ways. I mean, it, it was, it definitely brings with it a mood. Um, yeah. And it was unique. Uh, this was something you know brand new to cinema at the time that that vision of his art um so yeah I, it's it certainly was, um but it was nominated it, yeah yeah it certainly inspired uh, a lot of imitators as well um yeah. even roger corman himself who made galaxy of terror in 1981 do you have a favorite like alien knockoff type movie I only no, ask because I, I, I can get you started. I absolutely do have an example. Um, well, I love I, I'm, movie, not even, uh, I'm trying to think of, of any of I, that I've even seen. It's not the kind okay. of film. I'm, I like horror films, but mm. I like good horror films. I try to avoid bad horror films or mediocre horror. It's just, I, well, I try to avoid bad or mediocre movies as it is anyway, but I, I, I don't know, something about <laughs> horror, I, I want it to be particularly good. So there's not a lot of that that sort of appeals to me out there. So yeah, if you've got something, lay it on me. Yeah, well, that's I'm the same way. Um, I try to avoid bad movies if I can. Yeah. Uh, not saying yeah. that horror movies are bad, but uh, so they tend to be, you know, um, of B or, or C quality. And yeah. I'm not really a horror guy necessarily, but I do love um, an arresting film. And we just got done saying that this is not a good movie. This is definitely a B movie. But I really like the movie Event Horizon, uh, which is sort of a similar setup. In fact, they take quite a few things from Alien. It's a sort of workaday crew that's, you know, in hypersleep. They're on a ship and they have a particular mission and they find this other ship that that ship is the is the haunted house ship. So they go onto this ship and things kind of go from there. But it's a movie from 1997 with Lawrence Fishburne in it. And that's of the Alien clones. That's the one that really kind of uh, sticks with me. I think I saw that. I can't be sure. I believe that I saw that film. I think I watched it on HBO or, or on a DVD or something. Yeah. And I do not remember virtually anything about it. Um, maybe I'll have to give it a rewatch. The fact that I don't remember anything about it tells me I didn't not really a good love it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you never know. I mean... Um, they kind of they cut out the middleman in that movie because we've talked about sort of the demonic or devilish sort of actions or appearance of this alien, but it's just the literal devil, like in that movie. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, cut out the middleman. Right. Well, right. Go back, well, <laughs> go back to the Exorcist for that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Right. There you go. They took that uh, Star Wars meets the Exorcist thing literally. You know, horror movies for me, I like them when they're. I mean, subtle is not the right word, but when they're not. <laughs> as in your face as a lot of horror movies tend to be. I watched uh, an old movie with Julie Christie called the, I think it was the haunting from like Mm -hmm. 1963. Um, I watched that eh, within the last year or two. And it's, it's really, you know, 1963, I think it was. So that's a very early 
sort of horror film. I mean, you had the monster movies with Dracula and Frankenstein and all this, but this is a movie that tried to be realistic. Um, And really, when you watch the movie, it's, there are not a lot of visual effects and mostly it's sort of loud noises and nothing terribly frightening in terms of, you know, visuals. But um, again, you have to contextualize it to its era. But I, I think it was probably very effective for its time. And I, I, I enjoyed it, even though it wasn't, you, you couldn't hold it up to Alien and, and, and really compare the two, even though it was literally a haunted house movie. Um, yeah. um, but it had, you know, really good acting in it. And you, and you also weren't sh- quite sure whether the house was haunted or Julie Christie was perhaps a sure. little bit crazy, her character. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, movies, I, I tend to like movies that are, 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 are less in your face, horror movies that are less in your face. I mean, Psycho is not a movie that's really in your face. <laughs> like I say, it starts out right. with a friggin' bank robbery and, 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 and a woman <laughs> having an affair. It's like, wait, wait a minute, where is this going? Um, uh-huh. And The Exorcist was more, Exorcist was a good film and, and, and certainly more, um, you know, in your face, but a, a film that was less in your face that, that I would consider a horror film is Rosemary's Baby. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think that we definitely both agree that this is a masterpiece um, and not a disaster piece. Uh, but did you have any uh, last sort of thoughts about the film? Is there anything that we haven't uh, quite said about it? Probably, but we've said an awful lot. <laughs> there's a no lot. There's a lot movies. to say. Yeah. But I will. I will repeat something I said earlier, which is that uh, Alien holds up pretty well. I mean, it's a movie that at this point is 39 years old, 39 years from its release date. And despite, you know, what we talked about, the, you know, the CRTs and, and, and the, the older technology and computer stuff, um, it still holds up very well. It's still very atmospheric. And even if you know what's happening, it's... or what's going to happen, it's still a good ride to take. Well, I liked what you said about the CRTs and stuff. It's really kind of future-proof in that way because, you know, who knows how things will develop. And even, you know, another 40 years from now, I think you can still identify this as being a future, but with a retro aesthetic, let's say, that sort of uh, sets a tone. You know, I've seen this film a number of times at this point um, in my life. I don't know, three, four, five times, whatever. And watching it again, um, when you watch a film multiple times, it's easy to get bored by it, especially a film that relies on surprise at some points or a mounting sense of of terror. Um, And yet even with all of that, it still held up for me. I still enjoyed watching it. Yeah, there's just so many little things about the setting and the sets and just the performances. I think the last time I went through, I was really focusing on people's performances and uh-huh. the way that I know that this, the script uh, is, is pretty complete and detailed, but there was a lot of uh, improvisation on the set and that and uh, just people sort of working and getting into their characters. And you can really see that stuff kind of come out, really comes alive. Yeah. But I mean, we could just go on and on and on for another hour or Apparently two for so. sure. Yeah, so I think we'll just wrap it up there. Uh, thanks, listeners, for joining us on the show. If you want to let us know how you felt about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft services. You can also find us on Twitter at craft disservice. And we're on iTunes, uh, we're on uh, Stitcher, Google Play Podcasts, all those places. If you'd search there, subscribe and rate us and review us, 
We'd appreciate it. It really helps us out. David, where can people find you online? Online, my official website is drgiii.com. That's davidrgeorgeiii.com. I'm on Twitter at davidrgeorgeiii. Um, I've got a movie review website called moviereviewsbygeorge.com. I'm on Instagram and uh, everywhere else you can find me. Uh, I'm easy to find. And the credits are rolling. This is Aaron for David saying, keep it real. 